Hi there and welcome to Global Heart Church. Uh, I'm Jared Keane, the senior pastor, and wherever you are tuning in from around the world today, really, really hope and pray that in our planning of this message that it's going to really inspire you for the great journey that you are on and uh, for the great calling that you have in your own life. So enjoy the message and really pray that it's a blessing to you today. Um, okay, at Refill, our theme was a clean life and the hidden word, which is kind of based on Psalm 119. How can a young person remain pure by obeying and reading uh, the, the words of God in Scripture? And so we are going to kind of tie it all up tonight with a message on living a clean life. And our primary passage of text for tonight is Romans chapter 7, verses 15 to 25. And uh, this is the Apostle Paul, who um, I actually sometimes forget that he wasn't perfect when I read a lot of the Bible, but uh, we remember it in this scripture because this is what he says. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But I know that if what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. When he says law, he's referring to the way God calls us to live in Scripture, not like the legal system. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And by sin, he's referring to failure, to love God and love people the way God intended. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. It's relatable. I want to do what is good, but I don't. Even more relatable. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. He's saying this a lot. Um, I haven't read it out loud until now. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will, I promise it gets encouraging at the end, uh, eventually. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So, amen. So you see how it is in my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. I don't know about you, but for me, on a scale of one to relatable, this passage of text is right up there. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't do what I want to do. I do what I don't want to do. So I think immediately what comes to mind is like tapping ask for more time on my social media boundaries on my phone or like going through the drive through again when I said last time was going to be the last time or buying into consumerism and getting something else that I really just don't need. And we could sit here and list things all night. I think there are two levels to this Romans 7 problem that we face. Firstly, the obvious problem. So often we as humans struggle to actually do the good things that we want to do. But deeper than that is the problem of our definition of good. Because before we even get to doing good or not doing good, we have to acknowledge that in our context, in the modern West, we're actually pretty confused about what good actually even is. I, I had a, a lovely dinner with some of my unchurched friends a little while ago, and our part, they kind of all fall at different spots on the faith spectrum. It's a bit of an eclectic mix. And uh, part of the conversation stuck with me. We were kind of just 
talking about, as you do, our own individual approaches to relationships uh, and sex, which unsurprisingly stemmed from each of our respective worldviews, you know, how we go about it. And one of my lovely friends who just doesn't subscribe to an embodied, uh, a lived out life of faith, she said, it just really doesn't matter to me what the arrangement of my relationship looks like to anyone else as long as I'm happy because the only thing that is important is that I'm a good person. And that is not the first time I've heard that, and I know it won't be the last, because that is a pretty standard cultural metric for what is right, being a good person. I'm sure we all hear this. And what I really wanted to ask her, uh, but I didn't think was appropriate, was, and when you say good person, what do you mean by that? And this is, I think this is one of the conundrums of modern life because secular culture tells us this, anything goes as long as you are a good person, but then there's no roadmap to what it actually means to be a good person. If I asked each of us here tonight, what does it mean? What does it look like to be a good person? We would have as many answers as we do people because it's so subjective. There is no locus point for an actual moral authority in our culture because we don't really want one. And that gets a little bit messy. We were chatting with the girls at Refill this week about some of the implications of good things in our culture. So like we say, sexual freedom is good. Uh, I should be able to do whatever I want with my body because it's mine. And then we also say not hurting other people is good. And so those are both fine ideas. But if you follow both of those values down, they conflict with each other at some point. Because me just doing whatever I want at some point is very likely going to hurt someone else and even myself. So we kind of live in the middle of this worldview that sounds really elevated. Like, yes, we are evolved enough to do as we please without causing harm. But when we hold it up to the light and shake it around a bit, it kind of just falls apart. I would suggest that a lot of us are a bit more concerned with looking good than actually being good. And we spend considerable effort trying to make sure that we come off as better than we actually are. But scripture tells us in Romans 3 that no one is righteous, not even one. And that is the difference or one of the differences between the secular ethic and the Christian one. The Bible teaches us there is a locus point of authority. It is the Word of God and none of us are capable of attaining it. And so in order for us to even get to the problem of I don't do what I want to do, I do what I don't want to do, first we have to accept that there is, there is a right and there is a wrong and we find it in the biblical text and we have to accept that if that is true, we can't twist it or manipulate it or pick it apart, ignore bits that we don't like. If it's true, then that means the whole thing is true and it is our roadmap for how to live. And Jesus is the embodiment of that scripture. He is the, so that means he is the perfect example of what a good person looks like. That almost sounds like bad news. I almost feel like it sounds bad as I'm saying it, but it's, it's not, it's good news. There is this narrative in culture that Christianity is behind the times, that it's outdated, that we have progressed past Christianity to this point where everyone can be free. And there's also a really high value for intellect in our culture, but we often forget or maybe we've never considered, that Jesus was far more intelligent than the smartest of any of us. And his ways aren't just nice values for living. They actually correspond to how the universe functions because he set it in motion. He knows. Um, as John Mark Comer says, when we live into Jesus's vision, we thrive. Humanity thrives. And when we follow a secular ethic all the way down, we will run into the reality of brokenness and emptiness. And when we follow Jesus all the way down, we will run into the reality of human flourishing. 
Not necessarily by the ways we would define it either, but in the ways that are actually the most important. Being changed from the core of who we are inside out. Deep peace, lasting joy, eternal hope, purpose, community. And so I have said all of that to say, God's way is not just morally correct or ethically correct. It is the best way to live into reality, to exist in this universe. And it is the most compelling way to live. It will take us into flourishing. And God doesn't call us to live by a vague definition of good, whatever we want good to be. He calls us to a clean life, a holy life, a righteous life and a life of integrity. That is what a clean life is, a life of integrity. Now, if you, like, if you Google it, I'm pretty sure the common definition for integrity is having strong moral principles, uh, which is fine. But with a more biblical lens, we can think of integrity as the consistency between our interior and our exterior worlds. So where who we present to be is a reflection of who we truly are on the inside and not a facade that we're putting up. Meaning we're living a a clean life when what we say is backed up by who we actually are. And I love what Rich Veloda says. He says, integrity is not about living something perfectly, but wrestling with something faithfully. So if we go back to our problem in Romans, and this is the Apostle Paul writing, in terms of like intimidating Christians, he's probably on the top of the list. After he met God, he lived this radically self-sacrificial life uh, to, to spread the gospel. He wrote most of the New Testament. In most situations, Paul has the upper hand with moral ground, like he has a moral high ground. But even he is saying, I can't get it. I keep messing up. I keep doing what I don't want to do. But he wrestled faithfully. So how do we do that? How do we live a clean life? How do we do what is actually good? How do we walk with integrity? Uh, I have a suggestion for you this evening uh, in way of an equation. So my holy intention plus my broken action plus God's pursuit of me will equal a clean life. We'll talk about it. Yeah, we'll get to it. We'll talk a word on each of those things. So on holy intention, what is holy intention? Holy intention is renouncing the value of the culture that says being a good person is enough and showing up to the reality of the world. The reality that is Romans 3, 11 to 12, which says no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. We have to humble ourselves and come to God with a sense of repentance. Once we begin walking with Jesus for a lifetime, we have to recognise part of the process is still wrestling with that part of ourself or our sin nature, like Paul calls it. And this has to go beyond a vague hope to just be a better person. We have to take the fact that God is holy, meaning He is set apart, He is like no other, and that we are called to be like Him seriously. Paul gets it. He says, oh, what a miserable person I am in verse 24. I really do promise this is going to get very encouraging at the end. I promise. Just stick with me. I can feel it. I promise. Sometimes worse than an outright rejection of God's truth is having a head level acceptance of it, but a heart level and a life level apathy or indifference. I was listening to somebody talk recently about how we aren't losing as many people in our culture to faith crises as we're losing them to brunch. 
As in, we're not struggling with atheism as much as we just can't be bothered with the things of God and are too caught up deciding which new spot we're going to go to for pastries tomorrow morning. It's not an outright rejection of God. It's just this coolness. It's this apathy. And it's sleeping on reality. Because holiness is not just about how we live, but it's about how we see life itself, how we exist in the world. Do we see each and every single day as an invitation for the Kingdom of God to break out in you and through you? Do you see the potential for joy in God, peace in God, purpose in God in each and every moment? Bishop J.C. Ryle says, There is a common, worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have. A cheap Christianity which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice, which costs nothing and is therefore worth nothing. Holy intention requires showing up, showing up to faith with a deep desire to be radical in the middle of a secular culture solely because that is what is going to please and honour our God, even if it never serves us. It will serve us, but even if it didn't. So to live a clean life, we need to come with holy intention. But with our holy intention will also inevitably come our broken action. Verse 22 of our Scripture, I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. So before we walk with Jesus, we are slaves to sin. We are controlled by it. Once we accept Him as our Lord and Saviour, we are no longer enslaved, but we are still in the struggle. And Ben Stewart puts it really well. He says, some people think that becoming a Christian means you are freed from the battle, but that's a misinterpretation of what this life is. We're not freed from the battle, we're freed for the battle. We are freed not to struggle in hopelessness, but to struggle with the power of the living God who has the ultimate victory, who is restoring the world, who is restoring you, who one day will restore everything to completion. So this is what integrity is, not living perfectly, but wrestling faithfully. There are things that over the course of our lives we will be delivered from in a moment in the manifest presence of God. Some of that was happening last night. There are things that we will slowly conquer year after year, month after month. And there are things that we might wrestle with our entire lives until we get to the next one. But we do it faithfully. We do it in community, holding grace and forgiveness for each other. And then lastly, we come to God's pursuit. This is where it gets really good. It can be easy to think that if we are bringing our holy intent and we're trying to bring our broken action, that we are the ones pursuing God. But if we zoom out even just a little, the reality is that God is pursuing us. There is this well-known parable that Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke. Um, And a parable is is just a story that kind of mirrors a spiritual truth. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, uh, but this is the parable. I'm not going to read it at all, actually. I'll paraphrase it. The parable of the lost son. And uh, essentially what we find in this story is is an elder, a respected man within his community. And uh, he has two sons. And one day the younger son asks his dad for his inheritance, which we can translate to... Hey, Dad, I really wish you were dead. Please, can you give me my cut of what I'm going to get when you are dead so I can take it and go live as I please? And the Scripture says the father divided up his estates, the story, gives him what he wants, and the son leaves to spend his money, live the wildlife, live the high life, and he enjoys it, but then eventually he has nothing left. No money, no friends, he hits rock bottom, and it eventually occurs to him that back at his father's house, even the lowest paid workers have food to eat and are actually better off than him. And so he decides to go back and beg for a job. 
And the real life parallel that Jesus is referring to when he alluding to when he tells this story is the history of the Israelite people, but also all of humanity and you and I. So we as humans, we have the special favour of God in comparison to all of creation. We were made in His image. But we say to Him, I wish that you and your authority were not here because I want to live how I want to live. And I'm going to take the resource and the life and the energy that you have given me and I'm going to live in pursuit of myself. And so we go after power, pleasure, entertainment, brunch, whatever, seeking to find ourselves in anything and everything but relationship with the Father. And very often we find ourselves in some form of rock bottom, spiritually, maybe physically, maybe mentally, maybe emotionally, maybe relationally, maybe all of the above. Um, The band can join me whenever you guys are ready. So back to the story, this son, he decides to come back home and beg for a job. And, and the people who are listening to Jesus tell this story in Luke, they know what to expect next uh, because they are living in an honour-shame culture. They even had this specific ceremony which uh, I can't, with a name that I can't pronounce where the community would meet a person who had shamed their family uh, at the border of the village and smash a clay pot on the ground, clay pot on the ground to symbolise that that person has now been ostracised. So that's what the listeners of Jesus are expecting to hear as he tells this story. The son works up all his courage to go home and beg dad for his job, only to be confronted and then excommunicated. Except that's not what Jesus says. Instead, as the son approaches, his father sees him from a far off distance and he proceeds to pick up the hem of his long robes and he runs out and runs a lengthy distance to meet his son. And now that's just not, oh, how nice, how lovely. This is a respected elder in his community. He does not run out to the edge of his property to meet an outcast. In fact, he doesn't really run at all. It's not very dignified. He certainly does not expose his ankles ever because that is unheard of and that is shameful. And on top of that, he has been deeply wounded by the cold rejection of his son. And yet, the father defies all expectation of what he should do, what he would do, and full of compassion, full of love, he willingly shames himself to reach his son first, stop the community from getting to him and banishing him, and welcomes his son back into his home. So the parallel, church, would you picture yourself for a moment? Picture yourself in your worst moment, the worst of the worst of your broken action, your lack of holy intent, maybe your apathy, your sin, your doubt, your unbelief. Picture yourself at the height of your fear, your insecurity, when it's impacted others, when it's broken relationships, when it's been a blatant rejection of God. Picture yourself in that place and then look up to see God the Father, holy, righteous, dignified, but not rejecting you, not standing far away, waiting to see what it's gonna look like when your actions meet their consequences, but rather picking up His robes, running, coming full speed towards you in love and compassion, bringing shame upon Himself, your shame upon Himself, that you might just be able to come home into His loving arms, even though it is the last thing that any of us deserve. That is the pursuit of God. It doesn't matter if we are leaning into it, half leaning into it, rejecting it, totally unaware of it this evening. The truth is that our identity is defined by the love of the Father for us. Your status as His beloved child has nothing to do with you, nothing to do with your holy intent or your broken actions, but everything to do with Him. 
So yes, we are called to live with a holy intention. We are called to put effort behind that. We have to show up to our transformation. But in the big picture, in the scheme of things, we are never the pursuer, we are the pursued. And the love of God is not just about the moments where maybe we feel His manifest presence in a, in a church service or you're on the altar at refill or things are going well in your life and you feel like He's blessing you. His love is moving towards you, running towards you in compassion when you are at the lowest of the low and in the middle of the messiest mess. He is the pursuer and we are the pursued. So we are called to live a clean life, a life of integrity where our exterior world is a true reflection of our interior world. And our holy intention, us showing up, us trying, plus our broken action, plus God's merciful pursuit will produce a clean life over a lifetime. Thank you so much for joining us online today. Really great to have you with us. And special thanks to those also who give online. Your generosity is making the way for others to hear the message of Jesus, both here in Australia and around the world. If you enjoyed today's message, I'd love to encourage you to share this message with a friend, a workmate, a family member. And let's believe together that it will powerfully impact their life for good in Jesus' name. If you're unable to be with us at one of our church locations, uh, both here in Australia and around the world, please join us online every Sunday for Global Heart at Home on YouTube. God bless and have a great week.